church. Good morning. Welcome to all of our visitors as well. Glad you could join us on our Lord's Day. Uh, just a quick note before we start. You will notice from the, the slides that um, there aren't as many um, verses that are being displayed. And the reason is I just felt really convicted this conference where we attended a couple of weeks, or last week, how perhaps by putting these verses on the screen so often, I'm making my, my church a little biblically illiterate by being um, a little bit um, lazy. And, and I see that my children, um, and I can talk about them because they're not here, or two, two thirds of them are So I really want to encourage you, please take your Bibles and turn the pages and, and write in your Bibles the, um, the, the, the points and underline them. I really want to encourage, encourage that in our, in our church um, rather than um, making you lazy. <laughs> I said it in the nicest way. <laughs> uh, but last week we finished um, till the end of chapter 14. We are going through the, the book of Acts and this chapter recorded for us the completion of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. And we saw what happened last week. The two missionaries returned to their, their home, their sending church, which was in Asia. And what did they do? They reported all that God had done with them in opening the door of faith to the, to the Gentiles, to the, the rest of the world, the nations. And of course, there was no doubt a lot of joy in the church as they heard of the number of conversions and the number of churches that were planted and how God had delivered the missionaries from the hands of all of those murderous thugs while they were on their mission. And their time of reconnection with their home church must have been a time of great joy for everybody, including the church. And um, these missionaries, they spent time with their local church. They spent quite a bit of time there. They would have come to appreciate more and more the saving grace of God as revealed in the gospel. And they would have been strengthened. The church would have been strengthened in the doctrine of the gospel as the missionaries once again spoke about this to the church. And they no doubt would have all been grounded firmly in their truth that salvation is of the Lord. So it was a wonderful time. But what was a beautiful scene at the end of Acts chapter 14 soon became an ugly scene in Acts chapter 15. And that's where we are today. We are in Acts chapter 15. And I will read from verse 1 to verse 11. The title of my message this morning is Together for the Gospel. Together for the Gospel. Acts chapter 15 verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Father, we ask that you would quieten our hearts, we pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of, my, of all of our hearts today would be acceptable in your sight. We pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to understand, that you also give us faith to believe and to respond in a way that pleases you today. So we pray for your help as we study your word together. In Jesus' name. Uh, I'm going to start with an article that was written in the Nine Marks Journal, which I think will be helpful for us to set a, a theme for us today. So, in this article, the, the author of this article is asking a panel of pastors and theologians a, a few questions. And here are some of the questions Is there a race problem in the American church? Are whites missing it? Why? And what implications does this have for the church's proclamation of the gospel? So these were a number of questions asked to this panel of pastors and theologians. And here, here are some of the answers that were given. One pastor said, Many white evangelicals are more loyal to their culture than they are to the gospel. Another pastor he answered, the spread of the gospel will continue to be hindered by the sin of racism. We are quick to declare the scriptures to be the final court of appeal for what we believe in practice, but there is a noticeable inconsistency between our, our rhetoric and our behavior. We have muzzled the gospel so that it can fit within our cultural, racial, and religious traditions. End of quote. The problem of muzzling the gospel so that it can fit into a particular culture or tradition, as this pastor says, is not a modern day problem. It's not something that has just started in the modern day church. We see this problem in our text this morning. We see culture and religious traditions trying to twist the gospel to fit their agenda. And that's what we see here, the problem this morning. But we also see the solution to this problem in our, in our text. 
My first point is in verse 1 to verse 4. And the title of that is Certain Men. Certain Men. Look at verse 1 if you would. Still coming up, Pedro. Okay, verse 1. Look in your Bibles, please, in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So in the King James it says, these certain men, in verse 1, some of these men, some certain men. Well, these were clearly false teachers. And these false teachers, they were attempting to undo the gospel. They were twisting the gospel to suit their agenda. By trying to fit the gospel into their cultural traditions, they were perverting the very good news of the gospel. They were turning it into bad news. That is always the case when anything is added to the gospel truth. And we add to the very wonderful teaching that we are saved by grace alone. And the issue at stake was huge, and it still is today. The gospel, the very gospel that Jesus preached, was in dispute. The very foundations of the, the Christian faith were being undermined. And these teachers were teaching that men had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Basically, they were teaching the lie that one is saved by doing works. Remember, circumcision was a work. It was something that men could do. If you did this, you were saved as well as faith in Christ. They were adding to the gospel. Look at verse 2 there. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So what was the question? The question was, must Gentiles be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved? That was the question. That was the question. Or are Gentiles and Jews both saved by faith in Jesus Christ apart from the observance of the laws? And the answer to these questions have, have ongoing relevance for us today. There was no doubt in the mind of Paul and Barnabas that salvation was by, was by grace alone. They, they were convinced of this. Verse 2 tells us that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with these false teachers. And that word, no small dissension, it basically means no little argument. In other words, they had a big argument. They had a big debate with these false teachers. And think about why. Think about why this was so significant. These false teachers were known as the Judaizers. They came from Judea. If these Judaizers were correct, then Paul and Barnabas and everything that they had been teaching was wrong. It was, it was false. They had been teaching a wrong gospel to all of these people that they had just gone and evangelized. They were teaching that you are saved by faith alone. And these Judaizers were saying, no, you are saved by faith and by works. But even though there was no doubt in Paul and Barnabas' minds about what the true gospel was, notice here in our text, they, they humbly went to Jerusalem. 
They went to the Jerusalem church as requested by the elders at the Antioch church. So they went to the apostles who were all still in Jerusalem, remember? They went to the elders there about this very important question. Look at verse 4, Acts 15 verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Our next point we see in verse 5 to 6. We saw certain men. Now we see certain Pharisees. Certain Pharisees. Verse 5 says, But some believers, notice the difference. In verse 1, there were certain men. Those were the false teachers. But here in verse 5, there are certain believers. Some believers. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So these Pharisees we see in verse 5 were not the same group as we see in verse 1. At the opening of chapter 1 we encountered those who were, who were clearly false teachers. But these men are referred to clearly as believers that we see here. They were they were Christians, but they were confused Christians, okay? There is such a thing. They assumed that believing Gentiles needed to become more Jewish if they would fully enter into the New Covenant. And basically, they were a bit confused about what it means to be saved by grace alone. So here's a question that I ask you this morning. Do you know what it means... To be saved by grace alone. Do you know what it means to be saved by grace alone? Many of you may have heard of John Newton. He wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton was a man that despicably sold other human beings into the slave trade. And as he states in his hymn, he was a wretch. He was blind in his sins, but God found him. He was saved by God's amazing grace. And it is that grace that sets God's people free. That's the whole theme of his, of his wonderful hymn. And in fact, that grace that saves us, as, as John Newton came to learn, does not originate within us. It's not something that, that we can do. This grace comes from God from His infinite mercy in eternity, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And any distortion of this gospel truth has huge implications for us today. I remember when we were ministering in India, I was asked to come teach at a, at a Bible study. And in this room there were 15 professing Christians and I asked them this question, if an alien was to land in the middle of us and ask us how he can get to heaven, what would your answer be? What would you tell him? And every single one of them in that room told me that we need to just keep the Ten Commandments. If he keeps the Ten Commandments, then this alien can go to heaven. Now they weren't doing anything different to what these confused Christians were doing in our passage. They were adding to the gospel of grace alone. They didn't understand the gospel. 
Grace, I'm not sure even if it had set them free or not. Probably they were still lost in their sins. And with all that the world throws at the, the church today, I often pray that our church, New Life Church, would understand this wonderful doctrine that we are saved by God's grace alone. If we attend church to feel good about ourselves, if we attend church to learn some tips on how we can live better, we're missing the point. If we think like this, we, we see the human problem as one of just human psychology or a, or a lack of, of knowledge, then we are missing the point. We fail to see where the real issue is. Until we see sin as the problem, we won't understand God's amazing grace. And that Bible study I attended in India was full of professing Christians, religious people who thought that their traditions would, would save them. Their traditions and their, and their faith in God would count them justified. When they stood before God, God would see them because of what they had done and what Christ had done. And they didn't see themselves like John Newton did. They didn't see themselves as a wretch that needed to be saved from their sins. Do you know what it means to be saved by grace alone? That's the question. And the answer is here in verse 7 to 11. My third point this morning. We see the certain gospel. We see the certain gospel. So here they're gathering together to consider this matter. And the leaders of the church, they give three different speeches. Today we're just going to look at Paul's speech. He's a, sorry, Peter's speech. He's the first one to stand up. He, he stands up first, and then Paul and Barnabas stand up together. And then the third speech is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Today we're just looking at Peter's speech. Look at verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. So let me briefly summarize the main points here of Peter's defense of this, this wonderful gospel of grace that he's talking about. Okay? He says there, he was chosen to take the gospel to the Gentiles. This took place 10 years earlier, and we saw that already in Acts chapter 10. Remember, he received a vision showing that God had declared all foods clean, Remember in the Old Testament, not all foods were clean. But Peter had this vision, and he was a man with a strong Jewish pedigree. But he got up, and he preached the good news, and Cornelius, remember, and his family were saved. Gentiles. He also says in his defense here that Gentiles were given the Holy Spirit when they were converted. Gentiles, not just Jews, Gentiles. He also says here, that there's no distinction in Christ. 
between someone with a Jewish background and someone with a Gentile background, Jewish or, back, Jewish or Gentile believers. He says, everyone who comes to Christ has their heart cleansed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Romans chapter 3, verse 30 tells us, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. I hope you can see this ethnic tension here, okay? It's still there. It's still there amongst these Jewish believers. And Peter, he says, lastly, the Old Testament law was a law that was too difficult to bear. It was unbearable, he says. The rabbis often used the, this metaphor of a, of a yoke that was put around the oxen's neck. Um, they talked about that in reference to the Mosaic law. It was, it was difficult to bear. Jesus said something similar about the Pharisees' teaching. Remember in, in Matthew 24, verse, in Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus says, The Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So Peter is pointing to these Pharisees who weren't themselves keeping the law. Even though they wanted others to keep the law, they themselves were unable to. And I hope you can start to see this application and this relevance here for us today. I think there are many people, even professing Christians today, who still have this misconception that the way one was saved in the Old Testament was different from the way one is saved in the New Testament. And that is unfortunately a common misunderstanding. Now, salvation in the Old Testament was also by grace through faith in the Messiah. They were looking forward to the Messiah. Remember Abraham in the Old Testament? In Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 it says that he believed the Lord and he counted counted it to him as righteousness. He believed. He believed. In other words, he was in effect justified. He was declared righteous in God's sight by his faith. It doesn't talk about circumcision there. What did Abraham believe? He believed the gospel. He believed that the Messiah was coming. He looked towards the Messiah. This happened in Genesis 15. If you know the old, if you know Genesis, in Genesis 17, Abraham gets circumcised. Two chapters later, it had nothing to do with his faith in Christ. It was it was a sign. It was a seal. Please hear this. Abraham did not need circumcision to be saved by faith. There's no difference in the way the Old Testament saints were saved in the way the New Testament saints are saved today. Circumcision was just a sign. It didn't bring any life, it didn't bring any salvation into somebody's spiritual heart. It was an important symbol, but it could not save. Only faith in Christ can save. And today, in the New Testament, our sign of salvation is baptism. We've been talking about this in our baptism classes. That that sign in the Old Testament of circumcision is now baptism today. But still, think about this. Still today, there are people who think that they are saved because they've been baptized. 
they still think that sign is so important for their salvation. Just like circumcision, baptism, and even, even Holy Communion. That's also a means of grace, a symbol of our salvation. People think, well, if I take communion, then I'm saved. If I just get baptized, then I'm saved. And they mix these works into this doctrine of salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone. Rather than the Gentiles needing to learn from the Jews, Peter says here, the Jews needed to learn from the Gentiles. If God would marvelously save the Jews by grace alone, why would He, why would he not act with the Gentiles in the same manner? Let, let me just park here for a minute and make this very important application. Romans 2 verse 11 tells us clearly that God shows no partiality. And the King James Version says, There is no respect of persons with God. God gives everyone an equal opportunity for salvation, and He judges us by the same standards. Now consider what, what was happening here in our, in our passage. God's dealing with a multi-ethnic church was not an afterthought. Remember, this question is coming up where? In the Antioch church. A multi-ethnic church, very much like ours. The question didn't come up in the Jewish church. The Jews were happy to be circumcised. It was the, it was the Gentiles who were having this, this question. This new covenant church, the church in Antioch, the multi-ethnic church, was foreordained by God. It wasn't an afterthought. It was God's plan all along. Here the Jewish church is trying to bring in their, their cultural and ethnic distinctions into, into another church that was causing divisions. And this can be subtle, isn't it? It can be very divisive in the end. We should recognize cultural diversity in expression of the Christian faith. It's wonderful to have a church full of different people from different cultures. But what must unite us together is not our traditions, but the gospel of Jesus Christ in, uh, uh, the gospel of grace alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now, a couple of weeks ago, a lady attending our church was telling what a joy it was to worship here with such a diversity of people. She told me that she knew of a, of a church here in Abu Dhabi that was made up of people all from her home country. And she was asked to join the service, but instead she rather wanted to come to, to our church where there was people from every nation around worshipping the same God. She was a visitor and I thought, wow, this, this woman gets it. This woman understands. The Bible tells us in Revelation, doesn't it, chapter 5, that we have this rare description of what, of what heaven is going to look like. And there in chapter 5, in this scene, there are four living creatures and 24 elders that are falling down before the Lamb. And they're singing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe, and every language, and every people, and every nation. And that's what heaven's going to be. Full of people, God worshippers, from every tribe, and every nation. And the church on earth should be no different. The local church should reflect 
what heaven is going to look like. And this was part of the problem that the Jewish Christians had. They struggled with racism. The Jewish expression of Christianity, they thought, was superior. It was superior to the Gentile church. Even though they had the same faith, their expression of it, they thought, was superior. We need to be careful of that as well. Our expression of Christianity is not necessarily better than those who express their Christianity differently. You know, some churches are more conservative in their music than we are. Some churches only use pianos. Some churches don't even use drums. Some churches clap their hands while singing their worship song. Imagine that. Some churches raise their hands. Now, our expression of Christianity is not necessarily better than those who express their Christianity differently. And some Christians and churches, they deliberately celebrate Christmas and others don't. Some churches have Good Friday services, others don't. Now, I've been to churches in, in other countries in which not a single cross decorates any wall anywhere in their building. And this is not because of any legalism, not because they're any less gospel-centered, but because there's a very real danger that in those cultures, the cross is simply going to become an idol. So they avoid it. In James chapter 2, verse 1, we are told, we are commanded as Christians to show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Let me finish with a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He was called the Prince of Preachers, a famous Baptist preacher. And in his commentary on this passage, he says, You expect to hear Peter say to these gentlemen, These Gentile dogs, as you call them, can be saved even as you. You expect this harsh word coming from Peter. But he doesn't do that. He turns the tables and says to them, we believe that you may be saved even as they. Suppose some of our members should say, Yes, we believe that a drunkard may be saved, and a person who has been a harlot may perhaps be saved too. But imagine now that I were to stand up and reply, My dear brethren, I believe that you may be saved even as these. What a rebuke it would be. And this is precisely what Peter meant. Just pause and think about that for a minute. Maybe you have come from a Christian family. Maybe your family's traditions have been very prominent in your upbringing. But your family's traditions have not saved you. Maybe you come from a privileged background. Well, your money or your education or your status hasn't saved you. Maybe you come from a very moral and an upright family. Well, your parents' ethics and your parents' faith has not saved you. Just as Charles Spurgeon says, you are saved the same way that a drunkard and a prostitute is saved. By grace alone, in Christ alone. You are saved the same way. We cannot add works to the, the grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And next week we hear Paul's testimony as he, as he gets up to speak. But I love the response to Peter's preaching as we see here in verse 12. Notice there, all the assembly fell silent. That word for silent is muzzled or, or muted. They couldn't argue with the evidence. It was very convincing. I hope you see the evidence here. Maybe you're asking yourselves this morning, well, maybe I have put my faith in my family. Maybe I have put my faith in my traditions. Maybe I have added my baptism to my faith. Remember, there are two different people here that we see in this passage. We see the Judaizers, the false teachers, who are clearly trying to add these false teachings to the, the, the biblical gospel. And then we see true believers who were confused. Who were confused. I hope that you fall into the second category, not the first category. Maybe you've been taught that somewhere along the way. That your, that your not your circumcision, your baptism is important. Or that you have to take the Lord's table to be saved. Think about that thief on that cross, folks. He had his hands nailed to the cross. He couldn't take any baptism. He couldn't take any communion. He couldn't pack any chairs for the church. He couldn't give any money into the offering plate. What did Jesus say to him? Today you will be present with me in paradise. His faith saved him. His faith in Christ alone saved him. It wasn't anything that he had done. Just as a harlot and just as a drunkard, can be saved. We are saved. Not by what we do, but by what Jesus has done for us on the cross of Calvary. If our faith is in what Jesus has done, if our faith is in His death and His burial and His resurrection, that is all we need. That is all that is required. Don't add anything to this wonderful, amazing gospel that saves wretches like us. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for your gospel. Please, Lord, take this truth home. May your spirit help us, Lord, to understand this very important truth. May your spirit help us to apply this very important truth. Please, Lord, may we not be guilty of holding on to some traditions or even some practices or some attitude that we think is required in order to be saved. And may we not teach that to our children. May we not confuse others, even in our behavior. But may we give you all the glory because of what you have done, not because of what we have done. Lord, we know we are not saved by our works, but we know, Lord, works is evidence of our salvation, and we're not, we're not denying that for a moment. Lord, we're commanded to serve and we're commanded to love. And those are just evidence of our faith. But may we not become confused by the works that we do because of our faith. May our root be in you. May the fruit come from it like it does from a tree. Lord, I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts today. Help us to see whether our root truly is in Christ alone. Help us to see whether our faith is in you only. 
if you grant us the grace we need to repent if it's not. So please, Lord, help us to work this out for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Amen.